1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Shawley. A looming general election, a party on the verge of a historic landslide, a leader with an iron-like grip on message discipline, waging war on complacency. Sound familiar? A new dawn has broken. Has it not?
0: <laughs> education, education, and education. Tough. Crime and tough on the causes of crime. A politics of courage and honesty and trust.
1: Welcome to Lessons in a Landslide, an exclusive Red Box podcast series to mark 20 years since New Labour swept to power. In interviews with all of the key players in the 1997 campaign, recorded before Theresa May triggered her snap election, we discuss life on the political front line and the -the behind-the-scenes battles between Labour's big beasts. In this episode, I speak to Alistair Campbell, the former journalist hired almost against his will by Tony Blair to be his Director of Communications. New Labour's attack dog describes how he waged a war against complacency even after the polls closed insists that being cuddlier with journalists wouldn't have delivered the same result and describes why Jeremy Corbyn is not even as impressive as Michael Foote. I mean, there's Peter Snow saying possible majority of 171.
2: Well, I would doubt that, but I think it's fair to say we've had a very good campaign and we're having a very good night. Well, I mean,
1: 171, is Looking back now, 20 years on, do you remember it any more fondly?
2: Um... No, not really. I I, I, I still feel slightly um, let down that I didn't enjoy it. Um, no, I don't know why I didn't enjoy it. I think it was a mixture of things. I was probably exhausted, and the worst thing for me, and I think Tony felt this a bit as well, is that most of the people who were there, just as part of the crowd, they were they were that was it. They'd done what they were doing, whether they were party workers or whatever. But you know, we had we were actually. <laughs> there was no stopping because and it is it's something extraordinary about our system that so we you know he wins in sedgefield get the count get on the plane fly down do all that uh, festival hall stuff and then get a bit of sleep and then he's off and he's he's the prime minister and he's obviously the queen and and it just didn't stop so no i don't i i, I remember i mean i'm not i don't really feel the need to think of it in terms of fondly yeah. or not fondly it was just like at the time it was the culmination as you said in your introduction, of three years flat-out work, and maybe that's why I didn't enjoy it, because it was, you know, just sort of, I don't know, I don't know, but it, and also the fact I probably was depressed at the time, just sort of, you know, looking back, um, for whatever reason, I think it was a mixture of exhaustion, and and also the scale of it, you know, yeah. you sort of think, oh my God, you know, what have we done? It's like, it's like I, remember it, I remember at The Count, when um, we were watching the television at one point, and these seats were falling that we hadn't even campaigned in. And I remember Tony saying, you know, what on earth is going on? It's like, so, yeah, it was a big thing, but I, I didn't feel that joy that real seemed to be feeling.
1: So if we rewind back a bit, back to summer of 1994, and at the time you were political editor of the Today newspaper, Labour-supporting, but you know, a successful political journalist, and lots of people thought that that's where your career was going. But then Blair comes to you, and he had a, he had a bit of a job to persuade you even to take the job, didn't it?
2: You did, although I think deep down I probably was always going to do it, but I, I had, what I, I, I certainly was putting up all the obstacles. Yeah. I was telling him all the reasons why I thought it was a bad idea, um, and also at home it was difficult because you know, my, Fiona, my partner, didn't want to do it, we just had our third child. It was, it was tricky, um, and all my friends and family were saying, don't do it, uh, you're crazy. I mean, Neil Kinnock very violently saying you know I mean violently in language terms <laughs> saying don't do it this is going to yeah. completely destroy your life but I think that I'd maybe reached that point in my life of thinking as you say I was an avowedly pro-Labour journalist both at the Mirror and at today and I'd reached that point in saying to myself look you know you probably can make a bit of difference on the margins of politics yeah. as a journalist but actually if you want to really kind of get stuck in and make change you've got to do it and 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 also I think there was something about about Tony that made me want to do it because I, I sensed there was something big gonna go on you know so I said no a few times and then I said i would take a month to think about it Fiona and I went off with the kids on holiday Tony pitched up with Cherie and the kids and the mother-in-law and he sort of persuaded me really and, um, and that was it how
1: because obviously now people look back and it was such a massive landslide that you know that by that by 97 it seemed inevitable but in 94 how confident were you about him becoming prime minister were you getting there did it feel like a risk, or was it more of a sort of the, the personal risk of the impact it would have on you
2: throughout we both of us and, and also other people who are involved uh, this whole thing about you know war on complacency it was real and and I saw it as I think part of my job to think we could lose every day (laughs) and so I did think we could lose Uh, and and, and, (coughs) clearly there was a feeling that the the Tory government was had a lot of problems things weren't going great but at the same time you always felt I always felt I mean I've never underestimated the Conservatives as a kind of fighting machine and I always felt they could come back you know you mentioned the diaries if you read the diaries there's a sense almost that all the time we're thinking this can slip away
1: but even uh on the morning, when the results are coming in, you went out and spoke to some journalists outside. You were saying in your diaries, even then
2: you were sort of talking They, thought I, was, they thought I was mad. I mean, <laughs> they, uh, and, and it's like, and it's, you know, it's really strange that as well. Even after the count, uh, and I think Tony was feeling something similar, because we'd agreed to do this interview with John Simpson. Tony would do this interview with John Simpson, and we got to the count, and Tony said, ah, oh, I just can't be bothered. Uh, and, 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 and so I did it, and I was—I I actually saw it a few years ago. It was on one of those programs that there was sort of about, about the election. I mean, honestly, you just thought my mother had just died. I was just sort of like, you know. So John was kind of trying to get me to be all kind of up, and then I was saying, well, let's just see how it goes. Early days, you know what normally people do when yeah, they know yeah. they're losing. Yeah, I was yeah. doing that. You
1: would won. Was that the impact? Do you think of the ninety two election? The Labour Party being scarred by yeah. getting too overexcited.
2: Partly that. I think also, if you're, I think part of our mindset that made us so obsessive and obsessed about winning was the fact that we were your word scarred but also I don't, you, I don't I really think you mustn't take anything for granted in campaigns things yeah. do happen stuff does yeah. go wrong and so and I think it's only if you have that mindset that you can stop a lot of things going wrong that otherwise might Yeah. and I definitely saw that as part of my kind of my job and my role and you know I, I was I, I, you know with most of the team most of the time I tried to be upbeat but at other times I think it is part of your job to say listen stop being relaxed, stop being complacent, We've, you know, and you've got to do everything, everything. That's why when I look at the Labour Party today, and as you know, they say, yeah, we can win and the next question is always, well, what are you doing to make that happen? Yeah. And what are you not doing to make that happen? And, and we used to have that mindset all the time and, and I think it's an important part of how we won.
1: Do you think being a journalist first, rather than a sort of career politician or a sort of policy wonk, that you knew how you know, you know, see it as a journalist all the time how stories turn really quickly and somebody's up and somebody's down. Do so you bring that?
2: Maybe, but I think most politicians get that as yeah, well. Yeah. I think if you've been around Westminster, they, you know, they most most politicians are aware of how that goes. I, th- I think I remember when, when Tony asked me to do the job, he he, he said that he th- he said this, you know, he said tactical minds are two a penny, um, but he wanted strategic minds, people who could think about. You know how to make big things happen how to stay resilient how to stay the course and and how to build big arguments and i think that's what we did but yeah look i think i think being i think me having been the journalist that i had been i think it cut both ways as well i mean i think people i've made quite a lot of enemies as a journalist you know i I was very remember once i wrote a piece for the new statesman once about a foreign trip Uh, and there were some journalists who never spoke to me again um, because they thought it was kind of, you know, just... I, I, it was when Neil Kennett went to see Reagan. Uh, and I wrote this... I remember the headline was, You Guys Are The Pits. Uh, so I'd made enemies yeah, yeah, in yeah. the press as well as, you know... But, so I think the being a journalist thing was, was helpful up to a point, but I think it cut both ways. One of the things uh, I want
1: to ask about was the name New Labour. And I think Tony credits you in his book for coming up with New Labour, New Britain. But even then he talks about how there, was, there were vows about whether or not the end should have been a capital or not, and how yeah. big a impact. And now it just seems completely uh, taken for granted, I and know. It, you know, a new doesn't seem like you know that big a deal. But all the time you seem to be fighting what now look like quite small battles, but I suppose they end up being part
2: of a bigger battle to, to change the party. Well I think often, when you make change, I think some, you know quite often it's the fear of what might happen when you do it, and there was a lot of resistance. Uh, you know the, the the first conference when when Tony stood up and, and made the speech uh, talking about you know this, we were going to essentially going to change Clause Four. We didn't actually we didn't say actually that. say it. Yeah, yeah. It was all very. Um, I can remember. I think it was George Robertson who said. You know, people stood in for this standing ovation, and as they were standing there, you could hear the sound of pennies <laughs> dropping all around the hall. And, you know, managing that and, and, and bringing John Prescott on board, because John John was instinctively very against. I can remember Robin Cook, the morning of the speech, Robin Cook saying to Tony, you know, this could this could sort of destroy you before you start. I remember Peter Mandelson and I, Tony asking us what we thought the odds were that actually this might destroy him. I mean, it was a real fear at yeah. the time. And I think sometimes with change, it's only when it's happened that, as you say, you look back and you think, well, why was that such a big deal? But at the time, it was a big deal. yeah. And what was it like managing those personalities? Because there were so many big personalities. I saw Rory Bremner the other day, and he was saying that you know he's finding he's, it's almost like he's out of the job now. He, <laughs> he felt he had a lot of big personalities during that period. It's like you know he said even Phil, Philip Hammond doesn't do Philip Hammond. But I think um, yeah, that was a big part of the job for sure. And I think that I think another of the reasons why Tony wanted me there was because I wasn't a politician, as you say, I wasn't an MP uh i was but i knew these people very very well and and also you've got to remember i mean the the weird thing about when i first met tony when he was first elected as an mp i mean at that time you know within the sort of labor party firmament newly elected mp that nobody's ever heard of and political editor of the the daily mirror the only labor supporting newspaper it's sort of you you know so i had a i had a role but and i had a relationship and 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 I think they also—they all knew. I mean, John Prescott, for example. Wh- when Tony asked me to do the job, I said, "Well, I want to make sure I want John Prescott to be on board for this because yeah. John and I had had some really big bust-ups down the years." I think I did become the kind of—that was with John last weekend up at the whole Burnley game. I think I did become a kind of Tony's main point man for yeah. John, um, who, you know, d- d- there was a certain sort of Labour Party new Labour person that John just didn't like and wouldn't deal with. Um, Is that sort of Peter uh, Maddelson? Well, he used to... I mean, I, I used to take personal offences because he, he used to refer them to as the beautiful people, you know, and, and, <laughs> and I like to consider myself as one of the more handsome, sort of. Um, but, yeah, it was... the—it was No, it, it was it was sort of polst... It was anything to do with polling and anything to do with... I don't know, he just he just had a thing about, you know, the, uh, Andrew Adonis. Like, he, called, he used to call him the Minkon and uh, it was like all these policy wonks. He just didn't... So that had to be managed, you know, because the, and, and and then there was, you know, the whole thing with Gordon was there were some periods when it was easy and other periods when it wasn't. Was that overall,
1: do you think, an advantage or a hindrance to the Labour Party and New Labour having such big personalities and playing out these conflicts and you having to make your case and it wasn't all well, being law. Well, there are top.
2: two separate but related yeah. questions. Was it an advantage to have lots of big personalities? Definitely. Was it an advantage to be having all these? Differences of, which often weren't about policy. Sometimes they were, but often they weren't. It's about ego. I think a lot of it was about ego and ambition. Yeah, yeah. and about about status and about people's. I mean. You know, to be fair to Tony, I don't think he was that status conscious, I don't think he is now. But then
1: he could afford not to be, because he was the leader. I
2: guess so, but but also I think it's a mindset. I think think you get a lot of people who get to the top and they are incredibly status conscious. You know, you you have to be treated in a certain way. You look at the way Trump's behaving now, or I can remember sometimes with, you know, whenever you were with President Chirac, you were very conscious of the fact that this guy was the president and he saw himself as such and he expected to be treated as such. Whereas I don't think Tony was like that. And a lot of meetings, that a lot of rounds that we had, they were actually about, you know, who was at the meeting, who wasn't yeah. at the meeting, who saw the paper, who didn't see the paper. and Rather than what was in the paper, what the meeting was Rather than what's this about, and where, and where is this going, does it fit with an overall yeah, yeah. an overall strategy. And that, and that was just balls to be honest.
1: I think it was in one of your diaries, you talked about being the nexus of some of the key political and personal relationships which shape New Labour, and therefore recent British political history. But one of the key things you to be, you were sort of, you were managing the relationship with the media as well, and getting the media on side was a massive issue given the, how hostile the media had been, particularly in ninety two. How big a challenge was that? How did you sort of approach that to have gone from, you know, could the last person leave Britain to turn the light, you know, if Neil Kinnock wins, turn the lights out to having the Sun backing uh,
2: uh, Labour? I, I think of itself... Was it that important? I, don't, I, mean, I, I think I say in my diary that it's, a, it's ridiculous in a way that it's seen as important, but it is. Yeah. And, but I, I think we, maybe Tony and I had slightly different views on this. I think, I think Tony wanted to have as good relationships as possible with as many people within the media as possible when we were in opposition. Because you know, if they do sort of collectively destroy, decide they're going to try and kill you, then I'm not saying they can. Uh, but they make your life much, much more difficult. Yeah. And you, if you're not careful, you spend all your time on the back foot. What it was about for us always was was, was about the public. So, yes, we had strategies to try to get the sun on board. Not uh, not sort of in terms of getting them to back us, but certainly trying to sort of, you know, remove the claws, like, yeah. right, and stop the really nasty stuff. And we had the same for the mail. I mean, it was only about 2,000 that we that we sort of gave up on the mail and just realised it would become a total kind of anti-Blair, anti-New Labour propaganda sheet. But generally, I think the most important thing that we tried to do, even though you were having to manage the media as you went, was actually to settle these core strategic positions. Yeah. And and if you got those right, it's very difficult for... I can remember once at a conference, I can't remember which conference it was, it might even have been the first one, but I can remember David English when he was editor of the mail, and I just coincidentally happened to be, he was watching the speech from the back of the hall and I was just sort of hanging around watching Tony do the speech. And I can remember him, I can just remember him sort of infusing in a way that made me think, yeah, it's going to be hard for him just to sort of keep putting the boot in for the sake of it. And that was about the reality of what Tony was saying. He just thought this is a really attractive leader saying something new, something interesting, something that's going to chime with a lot of people. And it's like the sun. I mean, I think the sun liked to think. And the media likes to think that they kind of swing elections, and I'm not saying they're not influential. They're influential in how you frame the debate, but I think ultimately the Sun backed us because they knew we were going to win. Yeah, I don't think we. Yeah. I don't think we won because they backed us.
1: And also, if you're trying to be, build a broad base of support across large social demographic absolutely. groups, absolutely, you need the sort of people who read the most read newspapers.
2: Absolutely, and also, and also, it's a, it's a sort of it's almost symbolic if you're. You know, if you're sort of saying you want to, there's no part of the country that you see as off limits, there's no yeah. part of the political spectrum that you don't think should be at least thinking about voting for the Labour Party, then you've got to get your message out. To yeah, them. and and sometimes actually doing things with a certain media outlet might be the way the best way of signalling that. I mean, we've got you know one of the most difficult relationships in a way was managing the Mirror, which you know rightly saw itself as a paper that I you know ought to be very loyal to because i'd worked for it for so long and also because it had always been supportive of the Labour party and they got really hacked off that they felt often we were you know leaning overboard to try and get the these right-wing you, you, papers they've been there in the heart
1: in the difficult times yeah. now that you were taking yeah. them for
2: granted and yeah. managing that was very very difficult yeah. at times um but you know and likewise and you know, if you remember, we got a lot of flack for some of the some of the TV stuff we did. You know, going on with Richard and Judy, doing an interview with Des O'Connor. But well,
1: Des O'Connor was one of the ones I was going to ask about. Because looking back through that campaign, it was striking for me how much TV and you know, even how many TV interviews there were on the nine o'clock news and stuff like that. Which yeah. just don't happen anymore. Yeah. But doing things like Des O'Connor, that was a massive change from the sort of things that people did before.
2: Well, I think it was it was certainly a change, and, and it was. Uh, and it was a risk as well because and, and it's really strange, I think I say in the book that Tony was so nervous about that. I mean, compared to doing Jeremy Paxman or, you know, BBC, John Humphreys, whatever, he, he was he was really nervous about it because it was out of his political comfort yeah. zone. Um, and what was it and, and he and he, you know, right up to the point of of, of sort of at certain points in the build up saying, I don't want to do that, why am I doing this? I don't want to do this. And and actually he did I think I think um, again I think I say in the diaries that if. Some t- weeks after the Des O'Connor thing, he said, I think I owe you an apology because what was happening was that we were travelling around the country and people who would never listen to the Today programme, never watch Newsnight. Would normal come- people. Well, <laughs> Essentially. No, I, I'm not saying a people are, normal people. people. The people outside this bubble
1: that yeah, you know, exactly. we operate in.
2: And they were coming up and saying, Oh, I saw you on the Des O'Connor show. Oh, oh, you were terrific on Des O'Connor. Yeah. And no, that may not have shifted a vote, but it might have s- cemented an opinion about it. So those those sorts of... And I think it's sometimes just doing things differently that looked a bit fresh, that felt a bit new, that felt a bit different. Um, I think that, you know, they, they, I'm not saying they swung the election, they didn't, but they, the fact that Tony could take his message to anyone, to anywhere, was an important part of what we were trying to say. It's interesting how
1: that the, the 97 campaign became seen by as the sort of template of how you run a campaign. The sort of... Uh, just the way it looks. The daily, you know, certainly the way you did daily press conferences. You had celebrities was Helen Mirren one day, or whoever. Um, and that you know, George Osborne and David Cameron would say that they looked to the sort of New Labour model for how they uh, were doing it. But presumably you didn't feel then like you were redefining the way your campaigns were done. It was just no, not at
2: all. And and um, I thought we were working. I felt we had a sense of strategy. I always felt that. Um, I felt we were innovative. Uh, I mean, if I look at the, you know, the way camp- campaign has changed so much even since then, even in the three campaigns yeah. that we did, you know, it's changed so much. And I, but I think we, we brought a professionalism and a discipline to our campaigns that I think the Tories felt was their monopoly.
1: Yeah.
2: So actually, a lot of the stuff we did, I think they'd been trying to do for quite a long time and have been quite successful at messaging and centralisation and coordination. But I think we brought systems to it. That certainly helped, and we had some great people. You know, we had we had really good, innovative people, and you know, even tiny things. Now you look back and you think, well, it's so obvious. But I can remember one of the advertising guys just saying, "Look, it won't ca- cost you next to nothing. Why don't you just ha- book for one hour that thing up at the the rotating thing up at Piccadilly Circus and oh, put a yeah, physical yeah. Yeah, 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 and it got huge sort of coverage on the television and yeah. on the newspapers and. And so it was like, now that's just a tiny kind of innovative thing, but we had a lot of people who were thinking of in, 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 you know, and, and they were encouraged to think, let's yeah. try and do things a bit differently. You know, again, read the diaries. I mean, it was it was a struggle a lot of the time to get people to just to do the basics. So, no, it didn't feel, I didn't feel at the time that we were doing something... Amazing and groundbreaking. I just felt it was very hard work, and we were we were working that That's yeah, what I yeah. felt. The
1: thing, that, the thing that comes across a lot is how tired everyone was. Yeah. And just what a slog it seems, sort of counting down each day. And
2: oh, it is. And, and, and you know what? When you look at these American campaigns, and you know, I know why they have to do them because it's a bigger country, and you know, the system di- was devised pre-television, pre-air travel, and all that. But you know, a, a general election campaign of a few weeks, when you're on the road. And when you're dealing with all the stuff you've got to deal with, twenty four hours a day, with the media coming at you from every angle, it is utterly exhausting. Yeah, I think that does come through. But that's when you need people who are able to just to deliver and organise. And we, you know, the the, the the same people tend to get mentioned in terms of you know what what made the campaign work. But a lot of what made the campaign work were people on the end of a phone at an office. You know, who when you phoned them and said, "Listen, we need this done yeah. quickly," they would do it. And we, so I think we had a really good organisation at every well, level. The sort of Millbank Tower became this sort of byword
1: for the slick, ultra professionalised media operation which New Labour had, which the Tories just didn't have. But then, as with all these things, that then becomes a sort of it ends up becoming a pejorative, and yeah. uh, you know, it was over controlling and over. Yeah. You know, at yeah. what point did you think that happened? Did you? Did you think you ever were over controlling or was that just
2: a price you had to pay for? Uh, no, keeping I don't, control? I, don't, I don't think I was ever over controlling. I think that clearly I was over controlling <laughs> some people. But no, I think I think and even even you know I didn't care about what the media said about the campaign. I mean all I cared about was whether the campaign was effective or not. And it was important as well to have Tony's support in that. I remember much later once we were in government, I can remember, you know, when I used to get I remember there was a point when Somebody did an analysis saying, this is when Duncan Smith was the leader, saying that I was getting more media exposure than than Duncan Smith, it was absurd. And I can remember thinking, this is a bit of a problem. But I I remember Tony saying, listen, as long as we both keep understanding why they're doing this, they're doing this to try and make you less effective because they want to bring me down. And he always had that sense. So the whole thing about control, he never really worried about whether the campaign was being slagged off or whether we were being defined negatively. As long as, as long as the
1: campaign was worth, as
2: long it. as it was effective, yeah. Do you look back at the way that
1: you behaved and think you took it up? Not that you took it too seriously because obviously it was serious. But there were moments when you lost it, and maybe you shouldn't have done.
2: No, not really. There might have been the odd moment. There's a there's a couple of moments I think of times when I lost my rag with people, journalists. Um, you see, it is serious in the end, isn't it? it? It is serious. You're trying to you know you're trying to replace the government. Um, and you've, you've, you think you've worked out the strategy to do that. You're trying to build a team to do that. You're trying to do all the, all the stuff that you need to do to do that. And, and um, maybe, maybe, but I'd, I'd by and large, you see, I can only operate that way. I can't, I can't <laughs> operate without being full on. Yeah. Um, would it have been more effective? So the question I, that's the question I asked. Would it be more effective or less effective if, if I'd have been a bit cuddlier? I think it would have been less effective.
1: Because it was, it was about control.
2: It was about so waking up every morning and saying to yourself, what do we need to do today to make this happen? And how do we stop happening the things that will damage us yeah. as we go? And that was it. What
1: impact did technology have? And particularly then the, some of the later campaigns as well. Because I was struck reading as you talked about flying from Sedgefield down to London, you were getting the results on a pager yeah. in the plane, and yeah. Tony said to you, is that going to you know, <laughs> bring the plane down? <laughs> um, but the way that Tony, you know, the obsession with newspapers now, compared, you know, back then compared to now, it would be, you know, what's happening online or on rolling news or mm. social media and all that sort
2: of stuff. Yeah, it's changed. It's definitely changed, but I don't think it's, I don't think the fundamentals of campaigning yeah. have changed. I still think you have to have for a big campaign, you have to have a clear strategy, you have to have a good leader, you have to have a good team, you have to be inventive and innovative about how you communicate and how you get your message across, you have to work hard. Those things haven't changed. Um, I, think, I think that, you know, I keep reading the role that data and technology played in Brexit, played in Trump, and, and maybe, maybe there's stuff going on there that, you know, is so far ahead of what we knew and what we did, I don't know. Um, but I still think that the basics of a campaign, um, there are certain basics you have to do that, 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 that are still there. You still need that leader. You still need that strategy and that vision. You still need people who are going to work their balls off to, you know, to deliver. Jewelry isn't
0: a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: To what extent do you think that uh, the rise of Trump and Brexit that we've seen in the UK is a reaction to the over-controlling, London-centric, centralised politics
2: that probably started with New Labour? Well, people used to say the same about Thatcher, didn't they? they used to say Thatcher was, you know, domineering and. But, all the, that but the, particularly the and sort of the style of campaign. Because <coughs> actually, the,
1: the ref, in the referendum campaign, the Remain campaign was very new Labourish. They had all the celebrities, they had all the business leaders, they had all yeah. the photo ops, and it just
2: didn't seem to strike a call. It, it... Well, listen, we could have a long conversation <laughs> about what I thought of weaknesses in the campaign, but. Look, I think it's a reaction to a lot of things, and I, and I don't doubt that for some people it's, the, it's a feeling that... I don't think it's about the controlling thing. I think it's a, I really believe that Trump and Brexit are about the global financial crisis and, and people's response to that, and yeah. the feeling that people who caused it have got away with it. And, the, and, and they both, Brexit and Trump, have been able to capitalise on it ridiculously in many ways, but they have. Um, so I don't see it. I think, you know, a new Labour having been the party of power for a decade, clearly that's a big factor within that in Britain, but I don't see that as an overriding, no. and I certainly don't think it's about control. I think that, you know, I think, I think you, you mentioned earlier the concept of the bubble, I think outside the bubble, people don't sit there thinking about, this, you know, the way the media is managed, and they might do a little bit at the margins, but they, I think there's very much for, you know, for here we are in Milbank, for here, you know, I don't really see that as a much of an outside argument. That being said, I think we did underestimate the extent to which the whole focus on our communications would become such an issue. But I think that part of me was, part of me felt that was because the Conservatives and the media felt they couldn't get us on policy and strategy. So they went for for the kind of presentational stuff. So looking back,
1: let's go back to where we started 20 years ago. What's your sort of Highlight what's the what's the bit of the campaign or the moment in '97 that you remember most fondly, or was it just a hard, miserable slog?
2: Uh, it was a grind. <clears throat> I mean, I will tell you the moment when you say that, the moment that that's, that sort of stands out for me, we're <laughs> back to my depressive personality here, was actually phoning home the night before, and my son Callum saying to me. Uh, and he would have been... What would he have been? Ten? Uh, and him saying to me, are we going to win? And I don't know why, but it just made me... It just put the phone down. It made me cry. And, and it was like... And, and that was the moment when yeah. I felt we've won. Yeah, I felt we've just... what we, we, this is. There's no way this can go wrong now. Um, and it wasn't that that made me think that, but that was the moment when I finally let go of this notion that we might lose. So that was very, very memorable. And then I think... You know, Notwithstanding not that I was not very chirpy at Festival Hall, by the time we got to Downey Street, I'd kind of rediscovered my mojo a bit. I can remember when we went to the, because Jonathan Powell and I went in the two car, the police were behind Tony, and then Jonathan and I were in the car behind, and we went, I don't know, I can't remember even why, but we went to the palace with them. Um, and again, it was it was partly with, with family. Um, we got upstairs and we were talking to Robin Janbrin, who was the Queen's private secretary, while Tony was in yeah. seeing the Queen. And the TV was on in the background, and, uh, and and Robin was looking over my shoulder, and he said, "Oh, look at look at the lovely children in Downing Street." And I turned around. And there was my daughter, and my son, sitting on the steps at number ten. And it was like, it was weird. I remember finding my mother and I said, "Are you watching?" Yeah. Of course, i watch watching it. Um, and and so that was a kind of. But no, the overriding memories are of waking up at five in the morning in. You know not great hotels often and getting on a bus and ticking off dozens of uh events and interviews and, and what have you and then and then getting there and, and um and i do look back you know I, I i do look back a lot of it's about the the because the, I, I, I spent most of my time with tony there was a big argument going on the whole time whether i should be in millbank whether i should be on the road and i ended up doing a bit of both but mainly um on the road with, with with tony and but there was just this sense when we'd won of that we'd really built a great team mm. um and 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 that, that was uh so you know as i'm talking to you now i'm sort of all sorts of people coming yeah. to my head that you wouldn't ever have heard of you know who were just a big part of what yeah. we did
1: and then like you said unlike in the american system where they have three or four months to get <laughs> ready know. after
2: all of that you still have to walk up down the street and you yeah. go in and the work starts immediately I remember there was a little bit of kind of relaxation is the wrong word but there was a lunch and Tony's dad was there and his kids were there and um, but yeah he, he was he, he had to you know point a cabinet I did my first brief number 10 briefing um, and yeah it just it was just straight off and you, you're completely exhausted it's a ridiculous way to work
1: and particularly, and it's telling lots of people's accounts of it is the, the partly the amount of time that's taken up by campaigning, but also not wanting to be seen to be taking things for granted and measuring mm. the curtains and all that. There's a sort of deliberate decision not to prepare too much because you don't want to look <coughs> like you're being. Well, we, ha- we and that, that then becomes a well, problem I can, when, when you I can, actually get I can, in.
2: I can remember during the um, during the build-up when uh robin butler was the cabinet secretary and he did a briefing for some of the press about um about you know what happened in the civil service as they prepared for possible different outcomes yeah perfectly reasonable thing to do i guess but needless to say you didn't
1: see it like that at the time i didn't like to see it
2: like that because (laughs) because i knew how the press would take that they take this as the civil service getting ready for labor yeah and that however that gets presented it looks like Almost like it's now being taken for granted. Yeah. And, I, and so I just said, look, you know, and, and we, we, I can't remember, I think I said something publicly about, you know, that, that uh, it wasn't exactly very helpful. But meanwhile, Jonathan Powell was actually fairly st- steadily talking through what might happen, yeah. who would go where, which people would come from the campaign into number 10, and all that sort of stuff. But I was adamant that I wouldn't get involved in that because I felt that for me, for my sort of mentality and psychology for the campaign, I just did not want to acknowledge that we could win until we had one.
1: Yeah. And I can't not ask you about 20 years on in the state of the Labour Party now. I mean, it seems a long way off a repeat of a Labour landslide. What what do you think is happening? What, What could happen to the Labour Party to get it back?
2: Well, I, I mean, it's, I find it very difficult. I've just, I've just, um, I've just written 6,000 words on this for GQ, and even at the end of writing it, I'm not entirely sure what we <laughs> can do. Um, it's difficult. It's very difficult. But you're right, we're a long way from that. Um, I mean, even people who are broadly supportive of Labour and want Labour to do well, I mean, you, it's very rare that you meet people these days who think we can win. Um, and I think that was a tragedy for the Labour Party, but I also think it's really difficult for the country at a time when Brexit's happening and I think it's going to be a disaster and, you know, the opposition seem to be manoeuvred into, as far as the public's concerned, they've sort of, you know, they've supported them on Article 50 and and what have you. So, look, I don't don't think, ultimately, I I said earlier that there are certain fundamentals. You have to have a good leader, you have to have a clear strategy, you have to have a great team, you have to have people who are going to, you know, work flat out. Um, no, at
1: the moment, Labour Party's failing on all
2: of those, aren't they, really? We're not doing terribly well, yeah. it's got to be said. And, uh, and and up against the government, I really think if there was an opposition able to keep their feet to the fire, I think they'd be struggling because I, d- I don't see much there. No. Um, I do think that the, the, the Brexit route that Theresa May has taken is, is an absolute disgrace because I don't think she has the mandate for it. And yet it's almost like we'll be calmed. I mean, in America, there's, the Trump thing has led to a kind of... Upsurge and activism and and protest and satire and all these things and it's almost like we're we're just becalmed. It's like people say, "Oh well, get on with it." But I think a lot of that is because people aren't seeing where the where the competitive energy is coming from in politics. It
1: it, feel, it it looks like there is no alternative. You just have to accept, you know, <laughs> it's
2: like sort of battle. Well, it, feel, it, feel, it, it, it feels to me, it's almost like we've got a one, you know, it feels like you've got a one party state in Scotland and a one party state in England. Yeah. And, you know, people keep saying, well, why are UKIP having helped to, to win Brexit, why are they sort of vanishing? Well, the answer is that the government are basically. <laughs> people say UKIP light. I'd say they're UKIP pretty heavy. Yeah. Um, and so Labour's got to get back on the pitch and, uh, in a way that at least you know reasonable people start to think there's a chance otherwise our democracy fails
1: and there's been talk about another party and the sort of whether it's Tony or Nick Clegg or
2: George Osborne or that is, is that a realistic proposition do you think I really don't know I mean I I, I don't know but I I, th- I do think that our politics as they are feel very hard to sustain In, in, in the way, I mean if you go back to the People keep comparing it to to the '80s, and, and and I think that actually, if you you think back to then, Michael Foote, I mean, okay, he, he he got done over with his, the the whole that whole nonsense about his so-called donkey jacket and all the rest of it. And, uh, but Michael Foote was an, a great orator, an extraordinary writer, and a towering intellect, he had experience of government. And then there was all, there's all this talk now, you know, about the, oh, the new SDP, blah, 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 blah. The people who went off and sorted the SDP, they were giants compared to a lot of what we have now in our, in our politics. And I think there's a, you know, with first-past-the-post, I think it's very, very difficult. But, it, you know, we, we appear to be heading towards an election where, where the choice is going to be this hard Brexit, right-wing Tory party, and a Labour Party with a leader who appears to be unassailable pursuing a politics that appears to be unelectable for millions and millions of people in Britain, then that means that there is a sense for a lot of people of of feeling politically homeless. So would you get involved in a new party? No. I mean, look, I I would... uh, I will vote Labour, Uh, but at the moment I I, I just feel we're... we're not facing up to the reality of how bad things are. Every time I say that, you get people on social media saying, you know, if only you'd all just shut up and unite behind Jeremy and do da But what are we uniting around? Where is the policy platform? Where is that? I talked to her about all that detailed work you have to do. Um, so I think we're in, I think there's no point getting emotional. Fact, we're in, we're in a bit of a mess. Now, what gives within the system? It may be the system that ends up changing. I just don't know. But the toys aren't going to change the system when it's working as well for them as it is at the moment.
1: One of the things that Tony wrote in his book was he said, "I'm not sure it was great for him." This is talking about you. He said, I'm not sure it was great for him, but it was great for me. Do you think that experience was great for you, or was it?
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm glad. I always say that if you read the diaries, it's. it's they are, of,
1: but they are sort of relentlessly. Uh, sort of downbeats and i suppose it's part and i suppose that's partly what diary. you know if if it's an end of day no i am a end of a tired day reflection on a you know you remember the bad stuff
2: a lot of people who read my diary say how on earth did you manage to keep going for so long when you were clearly kind of um so i often look back and say i wasn't happy a lot of the time that i was doing it but i'm very very happy that i've done it um and you know it's it's true that um I mean, the life, that I, I if you'd have said to me when I was a journalist, back in the 80s and the early 90s, you know, one day you'll go into Downey Street and you'll, you'll sort of work with Bill Clinton and you'll meet Mandela loads of times and you'll help to win three elections and, and then you'll leave and you'll never do a, a, another job again because you'll develop all these different sort of interests and different sort of ways of working or what have you. I said, you were, it's not that neither of those things would happen. <laughs> and yet, I mean, it's, its so you know, it's 14 years since I left Amsterdam yeah. and yet I'm still totally defined by it in yeah. many ways, even though I've done loads and loads and tons of other stuff. And I don't mind that. Um, I don't mind it at all. And, and And I mean, I sometimes say to my kids that, you know, Look, I, I accept I wasn't around as much as I should have been, and and what have you. But there's been an upside as as well, and um, uh, and I think that, I think they get that. But it's it's uh, yeah, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. But it was uh, I'd be lying if I said it was a barrel of laughs every day. Although the one thing that I think does come through the diaries, it's there was within that inner core team, we had a you know we did there was always a lot of both light and dark humour going on and you need that. You definitely
1: need that. Alistair Campbell, thank you very, thank very you, much. Thank you, thank you. for listening to this episode of the Red Boxes series Lessons in a Landslide. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes using iTunes or on your Android device and sign up to my morning Red Box email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.